Julie Taymor sat down with moderator Alexis Green for a one-on-one interview in March of 1997. I'm Hal Prince, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage, produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. Let's start right out here. How did you come to direct? I started out working in theater when I was a child and as a performer. Uh, I think I started in Boston Children's Theater when I was about 11 and worked with um, the Theater Workshop of Boston. And if any of you know that history at the time in the 60s, Theater, theater Workshop of Boston was like the living theater and the open theater of its time. And as a performer, you were involved in creating pieces from scratch. So in an inadvertent way, I started becoming a director because as a performer, you were creating your own material. And as a company, working in that kind of collective mm-hmm. situation, you were forming and directing and editing at that time. There was a director involved, Barbara Linden, Julie Portman. But I started at age about 15, thinking about creating work from scratch. I never really thought about becoming a director till a lot later. I I came to New York as an actress when I was 17 or 18. And then again, I had the experience of going back and working in a company with Herbert Blau of the Oberlin Group. Um, We we were a group of about seven. We started out the first year at 12 people, and then I think we we cut it down to seven people, again, creating theater from scratch, not working on pre-written plays, but working on theater. For instance, we worked, we did take the Oresteia and created a piece called The Seeds of Atreus, which took a year to develop. And in this very intimate, it was in Oberlin College at the time. Um, and it was an incredible experience because as a performer, I had to use every skill that I, that I had, not just an acting skill, but visual skills. I was the one who would bring up a lot of the imagery for the company. Um, and so again, with Herbert Blau as the director, we were all creative participants in creating a piece. Was he a model for you? Yes. I mean, Herb was very, inst- I don't know if you people know who Herb Blau was, but he, he was uh, one of the original directors of Lincoln Center and then went off and created, um, was, at the, was at ACT in San Francisco. And during the Grotowski, Peter Brook, era in the 70s, if this has any meaning, there was a lot of, I have no idea if you know what I'm talking about, but there was a tremendous move towards collective creative theater making, and the playwright was dispensed with for a moment. Um, And a lot of the material came from the actors, but Herbert was a very verbal person. And I had not been a very verbal person. I'd, I'd always when we get into further what I do as a director, I'd always been very visual, and I'd draw, and I'd sculpt, and I'd, I, I was the person who designed the costumes for the company. I acted in it, I created the costumes, um, or worked on some of the visual imagery. But before working with Blau, I had never really, I, I, I speak, but I hadn't really been a, I hadn't done improvisations that would go on for two hours by myself doing all the words. And working in this company that we were very, it was a very intimate, close group, and there was no distraction because we were in Ohio. Uh, it wasn't New York <laughs> City. And uh, we, we 
we really delved the way that the Donner Party was the major piece that we worked on. It was created by from reading newspaper clippings, histories, diaries, um, the history of the period of the of the the move towards the West and the group. If you know the history that got stuck in the mountains, uh, the Donner Party and the cannibalism and all of that. So we spent over a year on this piece creating it, and I don't think there's any better experience for myself as a director than working with Blau, even though the, the, words, the, the words were a huge part of working that way, the, the script. It was, it was very physical and very verbal. I wouldn't say it was very visual, the work that we did. He was an extremely cerebral type. But certainly, you, you were coming into theater from a non-conventional completely way yes. already very early on. I, I don't know why that happened. I kind of seemed to miss the root of doing I've been in Boston Children's Theater, and that was about it. You know, I'd done plays there. I, and I did come to New York before going to work mm -hmm. with Blau. I dropped out of school, and I, I actually had a, a semester here where I worked with, I think it was um, the Chelsea Theater Group, which used to be at BAM, uh, Bread and Puppet Theater. I had, you know, I was interning with these mm -hmm. theaters, and the Open Theater, and um, Joe Chaikin. At the, Joe mm -hmm. Chaikin and Paul Zimmett. So I, I had started getting a lot of, even though I was a performer, I was really getting influenced by different kinds of directorial approaches um, and inspired by that. And Blau was the one who really encouraged the kind of thinking that would lead one to become a director. I don't think I ever made a conscious choice till I went to Indonesia. And that happened after I graduated from Oberlin. I had a, a traveling fellowship in visual theater. What that means is um, I started to become very interested in mask and puppet theater and theater of images. And again, that's another period of time at the beginning where Robert Wilson and Meredith Monk were starting to create their work. So that was a, an expression that was coined, visual theater, where the imagery was equal to the power of the language. Um, I started to get antsy to do my own work which is what happened at the, at, after about the second or third year of Blau. Blau went off to Baltimore. I was the youngest member of the company, so I was, I was the only one who was still a student. Bill Irwin was in our company, uh, a number of other ra rather interesting people who went off. Bill went to clown school. I went to Asia. And I, uh, <laughs> I, I was interested. I'd worked with Peter Schumann before in that year that I had been away from the school. And I was interested in really getting very deeply involved in seeing what Asian mask theater, Topeng in Bali, Bunraku in Japan. So mm -hmm. I, I received this scholarship, this fellowship to go. And I spent, it was to spend a year in Indonesia. First it was to be in Japan mm -hmm. with the folk Bunraku troupe. And then it was to spend three months in Indonesia. And I ended up spending four years there. And that's where I became a director. I became a director in Indonesia because I had something to say. It's, it, I had a story that I wanted to tell, a play that I wanted to create, and my first work, though I had directed before, I hadn't really, I'd done productions in college, but I hadn't really concentrated on thinking about what kind of theater I wanted to make as a director. And Way of Snow was my first piece, and it was very personal. You talk in, in the book that you have written about how different it was from going from Lau's approach and that group where you were working in a very private space, very protected almost, going to Indonesia and working, as I recall you wrote, in this a theater that was really an open 
space. It was almost a community. It was the opposite. It, it really was. Uh, it was. It was even. It was in a very simple way the difference between Western theater and Eastern theater in the sense of who the theater's for, <laughs> who is the audience, and why do you do it. And that was a major revelation for me. One of the problems and why we all, a lot of us split up after Blau was it was too intense and private. And the most interesting part of the theater, and I think this is, not, I couldn't say this because I wasn't in Grotowski's troupe, but I do think that the process became more important than the product. And it, when we finally performed what we had been so intensely creating over the year, I don't know if the audience could get nearly what we got. I don't think there were too many private issues, too many things. It, it all had to be edited down, all those hours and hours and hours of material that I, I'm not sure it was worth, worth it. And I think, well, it was worth it for me because I was the performer. So again, the process became more mm -hmm. of the be all. And mm -hmm. what I felt about working in, in, in Java and Bali was that you were working towards a finished product but there was a very different thing because the audience was always there. It was incredible in the first year that I was in Java, in central Java. I, I uh, became an acquaintance and then I got involved with um, W.S. Rendra, who was a, a playwright, a poet, a political activist in central Java. And he had a theater company called Benko Theater, which means really workshop, theater workshop. But Benko, it's like a workshop of a car repair workshop. And he had all these young teenage uh, dropouts and crazy addicts and all kinds, of, I mean, who really needed repair. And so it was a very, it was, a, it, it was an incredible environment because you really use theater also to, to fulfill their needs as human beings and to, to get to the spirit of these young people. It wasn't traditional theater, though it was inspired by traditional styles of Javanese and Balinese theater. And I had a, a, a fantastic, time working with that company and bringing what I had done and all of my experience in theater, and I choreographed for them. I never really acted in the company, but I, I, I worked with them. And what they would do is they would have all their rehearsals in an open-air uh, compound. So you were in a, in, a, in a neighborhood, and all day, you, if you were rehearsing outside, there was a, a border, and anybody could watch, but you really didn't have a sense of this precious theater. And I think that's what made me, partially made me so excited because it, it, that was the modern theater, but when you start to look at the traditional theater in, in Java and Bali, and, and more so in Indonesia than Japan, which I finally did get to, um, the theater was still in a kind of original state. There, there was no, television was really not a very, when I was in Indonesia, which was 20 odd years ago, there was very little television. I don't think it's anything like this anymore. But there were films and TV were not the, the, the major mediums. The theater and dance, um, topang, shadow puppetry, mask dance, the live theater was the popular theater. This so, may be an, un an unfair question, but is there one thing looking back on that experience that you have carried with you as a director from I, your yeah, work I there? I think that, that what I try and do, you know, and I really, when you read that you're a, this kind of, you're a downtown director or this kind of director, it, it's very annoying because what I think I like best about the theater in Indonesia is what I like about Shakespeare, which is that it, it really operates on multiple levels. So that you're, you're not, your audience isn't mm -hmm. you know, one segment of the society who already knows what you're doing anyway, so what do you think if you're, you know, you're not really, if you're, 
if you're trying to say something, they already know it. If that's how narrow, if that's how narrow you're going to be. And what I loved about the Indonesian theater was you could, it could be in a language you understood, and then there was Kawi, you know, the traditional theater. Nobody understands Kawi, which is an ancient Sanskrit form, but they get what the clowns are doing, or they get the they get the story through the movement. And also, the other thing about this theater was it was visual physical theater that actors not only acted, but they would be singers or dancers, that it wasn't, actors just didn't act. But they do have that too. I mean, they have soap opera. They have, they have various mm -hmm. kinds, but the traditional theater is much more of a total theater. Um, and when I think why I've done, if you look at what I have directed, it's either been original work from novels or from ideas that I have with other writers um, adapted into theater pieces, or Shakespeare, because again, Shakespeare, the landscape is huge. The, the, you know, it, it, it doesn't limit itself to living rooms, kitchens, dining rooms. It's, it goes beyond that. It does, because at the time that Shakespeare wrote, there was no film to do that. So he really wrote film scripts. I mean, he, his, his work really is that broad canvas. So for a director, it's much more exciting. It's really challenging. You've got, to, you've got a lot of leeway to think of how you want to create those huge, uh, those huge scenes, those battle scenes, those various scenes that are connected together. What about moving on to talking about a production that you created from scratch, as you put it, Juan Darian? Juan Darian. Well, Elliot Goldenthal and I, who are, how many, have a lot of you seen Juan Darian? Okay, so that'll be good. And if you have questions, um, please, we'll get into that later. Juan came out of let me see. Right before I did Juan Darien, the first piece that I created with Elliot and with another writer, David Seesdorf, who's known as an actor, David Chandler, um, was a piece called Liberties Taken, which was based upon the, uh, a book called The Adventures of Jonathan Corncob, Loyal American Refugee. It was written in 1789, an anonymous novel that was a kind of Tom Jones picaresque, Nicholas Nickel. I wanted to do, after coming back from Asia, I wanted to do an American piece. And I really wanted to mine. Um, uh, folklore had been one of the things that I've always, I majored in, in in Oberlin was mythology and folklore. I was very interested in all of those tales, um, and especially the beginning of America and what that, would, what that would be about. And I found this wonderful novel. And then I pitted that against a book a, a diary that was based on a real person, Deborah Sampson Gannett, who fought in the revolution as a man. And so David Seesdorf and I created this script together, and Elliot wrote the score. And it was, a reason this comes before Juan, because you'll see why I did Juan. This was a two and a half to three hour epic, nonstop verbal, 200, 250 page script. And it was with 200 characters, 15 to 20 people played all the parts. Um, the three leads were non-mask live actors, and all the other characters were done with every form of half-mask, giant, there were talking ships, figureheads, um, a brothel was 20 foot tall, brothel was a, was a woman, the brothel was a woman with the British flag over her head and copulating shadow puppets and various parts of her body. It was a, it was a, a body comic picaresque. And we wanted to do something the opposite. So I think that, that Elliot and I were anxious to do a piece together and not, even though we love David, we, we, we didn't want to have a writer. We wanted to 
Juan came up because it was, when I met Elliot in 1980, which was five, six, no, seven, eight years before yeah. Juan.en, he had mentioned the story to me, that he had read this simple six-page short story by Horacio Quiroga, uh, who was an Uruguayan uh, writer. And I didn't pick up on it at that time. But when we had the opportunity, Lynn Austin from Music Theater Group said she wanted to do a work of ours, come up with an idea. Very few producers are like this. Um, we went back to trying to find a piece, and we really wanted to tell a piece that could be told through music and imagery, and where language was not the dominant motivating mm -hmm. through line force of, of the work. And Juan seemed to be that kind of piece. And Eliot's idea had always been, before he met me, he had wanted to do Juan Darien, and he had always thought it was a veiled passion play. And it was his concept to use the Requiem Mass, the Latin Requiem Mass, as the libretto, as the actual language. So it was, it, that's how we got to a carnival mass, with a capital M. Um, that we knew that if we, that the language then would, wouldn't necessarily forward the story, what, but would be a parallel event to what was going on in the story. And you wouldn't need to understand the language. Now this was inspiring to me again, because I had lived in Indonesia where, and traveled through Japan, and the best theater I saw that during those years was Minushkin's Théâtre du Soleil's um, uh, Twelfth Night, La Nuit de, what is it, La Nuit de Roi? Pardon my French. And I hadn't understood a word, and it was the be I knew I knew the ten I knew uh, Twelfth Night, so I didn't really need to understand the word. Then I really got the language and the sound of the language. This had always been something since traveling through Asia that I, I felt very passionate about. And we all know that opera, it is a dicey thing when you hear opera in English. I mean, I believe in it, but there is something that happens to your brain when you have to hang on every word. And there's a certain thing about music that is and language and lyrics, when they're incomprehensible, they have another kind of power. So you can ask most opera goers, they're going to like opera in Italian better than they're going to like the translation. And there is also a mixed feeling about whether we want to have supertitles or not. Because again, once you're reading the supertitles, you're using a different part of your, your brain, and therefore you can't respond in the same kind of way that you would if you let that music wash over you. So Elliot and I felt excited to try it, the challenge of of creating a story and making sure that you could understand all of the story without words. And we went through a lot the first time. We've done it three times in New York. The first time, we had many more scenes that we ended up cutting out that had words. We started with actors speaking. That didn't work. It became very banal. Then we did all Brechtian things. We'd have scrolls or plaques. You know, when the school teacher is asking, this is the scene that was the hardest. When the school teacher asks Juan, you probably don't know this is what was going on unless you let, read the libretto, uh, uh, asks Juan to describe the jungle. And Juan gets put into trance, which is the scene with the big gold pocket watch. And then he goes back into his memory, and he starts to describe the jungle from the viewpoint of being a little baby jaguar. And the final thing, he, and this is all in Spanish. What Elliot did was he set Quiroga's Spanish poetry to, to music wasn't in Latin. Because some of the, some of the, um, the pieces were, were in Spanish or original songs by Eliot. So we, I had to find a way that you could get it without understanding him saying, I mean, what he says is, I feel the mud graze against my whiskers. And the word whiskers, all those people who spoke Spanish heard the word bigotes, 
but if you didn't, you saw this. You know, that's all you saw. You saw a baby jaguar come into the scene, so you knew that he was saying something about himself. But hopefully the audience is going to get that through piecing those images together. And I think that's what makes it an exciting piece, that you, you don't have to know all of that. You can follow the main um, story points because they are clear. We know when the mother suckles the baby what that means. We know these are, these are powerful enough images that tell the story without having to get that literal with it. So we weren't sure whether this really was going to tell the story um, precisely enough. It, it, worked, it did work as a theatrical event. Whether it worked completely to tell the story, I can't say because I know too much. As a director, would it be an experience that you would want to repeat, giving yourself the freedom to really cr create totally from the bottom up, knowing that you were going to be the director, you know, conceptualizing and... You mean like Juan Darien? Yes. Oh, yeah, we're doing that now. I mm -hmm. mean, we, uh, the, the, since Juan, Elliot and I have been working on, uh, we haven't done anything without something, what do you call it, taking it from, adapting from something else, a completely original piece. We would like to do that, and we're beginning to mm -hmm. talk about ideas. But right now, since Juan, we, we were, we've been working on the opera Grendel, which is, I don't know if any of you are familiar with John Gardner's novel. Grendel was written in the 60s, and it's the Beowulf legend from the monster's point of view. It's a wonderful novel, and I, and I read it when I was in college, and he read it when he was in college, or if he went to college, I don't know, but at a different time. And we both love the story. It's, a, it's another picaresque, but it's a, it's a psychological picaresque, something, philosophical picaresque. Something that, that you alone particularly, I think, can, uh, can address among theater directors is how a director works with puppets, speaking of Juan Darien, because there were so many large and marvelous puppets. Can you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, I mean, as a director, I, I, I like to think that I can do anything, anything that interests me. So the puppets part of my life is, is, the, is a wonderful part and also a kind of annoying thing because I love to direct actors as much as I, probably more than I like to actually direct puppets. I like to conceive the puppets, I like the idea and I like it when it's done, but I can't say that I enjoy working with it quite as much as I do doing something like The Green Bird, which is masks, or Titus, which is nothing. It's just really trying to work with great actors. Because unless you have actors who really enjoy the puppetry, it's always a bit of, this is going to be great, do it for the piece. You know, it's, it's a very communal. Um, Juan Darien took a huge, always takes a toll on the cast. Because our culture does not support puppetry as a high art form. If you're in Japan and you're a bunraku performer, you are a god. You are the master. That is the highest performance art you could possibly be a part of. Uh, a master bunraku pu uh, puppeteer takes 80 years to be considered a master. And maybe when you're 60, you can take off the black veil and do the, the special head and hand part. But here, it's uh, directing, conceiving for the puppets and masks is the reason I use them is because of many stories, like a Juan Darien, can't be done with just humans. And later I'll talk a little bit about The Lion King, which is what I'm working on now. There are big tales, the Haggadah, which I did when I got, first got back from Indonesia. I went to the public theater and we were going to do the Haggadah, 
well, you've got the ten plagues, you've got the Red Sea. You, you know, it, in a way, it's what liberates you as a director because you say, I'm not limited to a cast of seven people. In, in Liberties Taken, as I said, there were 150 parts. One of those sections was the Boston, there was a role of the Boston Committee of Safety. Well, the Boston Committee of Safety, which was like the moral majority at the time, were 25 cut-out wooden heads with enraged faces on, you know those toys that are like snake, the snake toys that move around like that, that are all jointed? So we stuck the heads on this moving contraption, and you pulled strings, one string, and all the mouths would open, and two people could roll across the stage. So, you know, this is something that's very much the way I work in total. It's an ideograph of a mob. I'll, when I have to do a mob, what do I need? I don't need all the arms and the legs and the bodies. I don't need the individuality. All I need is those horrible faces and those loud mouths. So I strip it down and just, this, an ideograph is getting to the essence of when you're directing an actor, you say, you know, give me your, show me what your, your character is in three strokes. It's basically an ideograph, just so that you understand this, because this is a really strong principle that I learned very early on. I think we did it with Blau, was the first time I started working this way. It's like a Japanese brush painting. If you, if you watch how those brush paintings, the calligraphy is done, it takes three strokes to create a bamboo forest. You know, you, you're not allowed all that detail. In many ways, set designers are quite often smarter than directors because they are not given the luxury of a lot to create what they have to say it all in one stroke. Now, a lot of them don't do it very well, but if you're a great set designer, you have to ideograph the production. You have to be able to get it into two or three sets, or maybe it's one unit set or one image, but you've got to get the whole feeling of the production. I'm not talking about just making a living room, but if someone takes a living room just to twist it or turn it upside down or however they do, they're obviously getting the essence of that production into that design. So when I start to work as a director on a project, I know I'm jumping around here, but we don't have days and days. So um, <laughs> I, I went either if I'm the designer, but as a director, I almost never would design the set. Almost never. Juan Darien, I co-designed with Skip because it was uh, G.W. Mercier. Um, it was impossible not to. But I really like, even though I do design, I like to work with other people because I think it's going to pull me farther and it's going to be a collaboration. It becomes a little too, it's boring and you're just working with yourself if you do it all. But if you have a really good designer, then you get you go a, another step forward. And uh, Green Bird, it was almost a total co-design with the other two designers, three designers. So going back for a second, just to pop it, they, they seem to give you as a director a great deal more flexibility. Uh, well, one of the things that I do in the large-scale works, when I say large-scale, it doesn't mean that they're huge budgets or that there are lots of people, but they may cover, like Juan does, jungles and carnivals or you know, the liberties taken was on the sea, it was in Barbados, it was in Manhattan at the brothel, it was on the rebel. There were 35 scenes in there. Um, it allows me to work uh, almost cinematically. And this is, this is something that if you see my work, you'll see a lot. And let me see, in Juan Darien, the perfect example is the long shot is the village, then you see the shadow puppets, you know, in the, in the houses, all of the shadow puppets of the nighttime in the houses, the copulating couple here, or the woman brushing the hair of, of, a, of a young girl there. Or you remember the scene where, and then we're drinking. So you get a long shot of the town. 
Then the whole village turns around and you get the inside of one of those houses. That's a close-up. Um, the giant head is a close-up in a mask. You might have, and I learned, I think a lot of this came out of working with Peter Schumann, where you'd have a huge head and maybe just a crystal tear would come out. And the mask with the big hands. The big hands are an example in Juan Darien of, of the grief, of the plague. All of those puppets, for instance, um, you, you know the plague sequence where the man just picks the baby up and down. You look at the puppet and you say, what is it? Sh what should move? Not everything should move. That's why I hate marionettes. I don't like them because they're all, everything's loose and going all over. What I like is deciding what is the movement that's going to say it all. I did a play by Christopher Hampton called Savages, and just the hand came up to the woman's mouth like this when, to show horror. Just. Now you can do this with actors. It's not, this is, you know, this is what I do with actors. If you're working with actors, to find what the physical style is, what the vocabulary. But in a puppet, you can actually sculpt it in, and you, you're creating relief, so you're showing exactly. It's total control. I mean, I, I'm a total control freak, and that's why I use But it's really more that you, you can play with this sense of scale. So you have that long shot, you have the close-up. Um, again, how are you going to do jaguars leaping in a, in a carnival? So it doesn't limit the stories you tell. I think that's when I, I wouldn't say I'm interested in doing puppet theater. I'm interested in telling stories. And if the stories require that, I did The Tempest. Now everybody knows The Tempest. Um, I've directed it three times. It was my first Shakespeare. And, and there isn't a director that doesn't have to go through a lot of thinking, researching, agonizing over Caliban and Ariel because they're not human beings. You could play Caliban as a complete human. I mean, he is a human being, but he's called a monster. And therefore, if you, you call him a monster, you just say, from whose perspective is he a monster? Is he a real monster with fins, you know, and all of that that you see sometimes described? in the cast breakdown? Or is he a monster because he's perceived of as a monster by Prospero? Well, that's the one that I saw. I saw I, my Caliban, if, you, if you've seen the book or seen the production, was a man in what was like a mud man, from the mud men of New Guinea, one of those rock masks where you just have two eye holes, a big mud mask over his head with a hole for the mouth, two eye holes and two ears because that's as primitive as you could possibly be. It's reducing a human being to nothing but his orifices. And I got the idea from the dialogue, from the line where he says, here I'm stymied in this hard rock while you did take from me the rest of the island. And, I, and that image, what I love about Shakespeare is all of my ideas come directly from the text. The images are in the text. Rome is a wilderness of tigers in, um, in Titus Andronicus. But back to Caliban, here you've got a man, if you, the way that, that he was performed by the actor, he was practically nude, an incredibly beautiful physical body. He was the island. He is the animals. He is the birds, the lions, the tigers of the island. He represents the island, but he's imprisoned in this rock. And you wonder, I was very nervous, can all this gorgeous poetry come out of that? In a way, it was even more special because you didn't get the benefit of the facial expression. So you had to listen to the words. You really heard what Caliban said. He, it was hard for the actor, but it was very pin-spotted by the fact that you weren't given the luxury of facial emotion to support the language. And then critically, in thinking the through line of this, at the point where Trinculo and Stefano, the two clowns, come and intoxicate Caliban, and he thinks that, that he's found 
the, his new gods. He goes to take the logs. He's picking the logs back for Prospero. He takes one of the logs, and he breaks open his head. And he says, ka, ka, Caliban, find a new master. What is it? Get a new man. Free, freedom, mm -hmm. high day, freedom, high day. So all of a sudden, like an egg breaking, there's the birth of the human face. And freedom has meaning because it's, it's real. It's tangible. There's the actor's face. Do you know what that does to, to deny something? This is a big part of direct. What are you going to limit? The more you put, this is what puppets do, the more limitation, then when they show something that goes beyond that limitation, it's even more amazing. It's startling because you did, you, we take human beings for granted. You know, we take facial expression, we take it all. When it's not there and you see an emotion come through, when an animate object moves in a certain way and you feel the emotion, it's even more marvelous. So all of a sudden, this actor had life in his face and he took a piece of the mask and he wore it on the side of his, he, he tied it to his, his loincloth as a, a, a shard, as a, as a token, totem of his enslavement. And at the end of The Tempest, you know, it's very iffy what goes on with Caliban and, and Prospero. It's another ending that you've got to deal a lot with, you've got to figure out. <laughs> so at, in, in my version, he took the piece of the mask when he asks for forgiveness. There's no dialogue there. So the action was that he knelt down in front of Prospero and he put a piece of the mask on his face. It's a very simple concept. And Prospero went and took it off. He didn't have any less authoritarian attitude towards him, but he just, we know now Prospero's not going to go back there either. So it gave a lot to Prospero. It said that he has gone through this journey and this labyrinth and this maze with everybody else, and he has gone to another place. You don't get that in the text. So you have to decide, are you going to, how are you going to do that in that relationship? Do you want to talk about Titus? Or, sure. Or, yeah, no, no, okay. Titus. Um, well, you, so you went back to quite a fixed, heightened text uh, in Titus Andronicus. Uh, you write in your book that one of the challenges for you was how to portray all the incredibly violent, violent acts. How did you decide to approach Yeah, do, do, you, do you all know Titus Andronicus? Well, if you don't, it is, it is one of his, if not his earliest play. Um, I think it's one of the first ones actually published. But it has all that raw, nasty youth in it. It's not a cultivated, worked-on play. And it's very, um, it's over the top. In his own day, it was, it was his most popular play by far, because it was a pot boiler. And it was fun, um, one of those penny dreadfuls, grangy, you know, it, 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 had, it was like Pulp Fiction of his time. And there are 15 or 20 horrific violent acts, not just murders, not murders, but hands lopped off, tongues cut off, rapes, heads cut off and brought back as gifts. Um, the, by the end, Titus, just very quickly, Titus is a great general who's come back from the war with the Goths, a Roman general, and he's like our Schwarzkopf or, or um, Colin Powell, and everybody wants him to be president. He, they want him to be the emperor, and he says, no, that's not me. I'm a, I'm a general. I don't do that. And he gives the, it gets, he gives the office to the wrong person. Um, but he's a good man, and he is a very uh, powerful, patriarchal presence. And what happens in the story is that he starts this way as a very moralistic person, and by the end, 
He is baking his enemies. He's cutting their heads off, baking the children into pies, and serving them to their mother, the enemy queen, Tamara. Sort of, you know, what was a Sweeney Todd <laughs> kind of thing. And meanwhile, counter, uh, paralleling that is Aaron. And Aaron is the blackamoor. He's the only other really great role for a black man in Shakespeare other than Othello. And he is, um, people think it's, a, it's not a, people mistake a, thinking that it's a racist play. It's not a racist play, it's about racism. I mean, it's similar in the sense that well, you, if you'd want to talk about The Merchant of Venice, it, it, you see how Aaron, you understand why Aaron is as despicable and hateful as he is. He's very sympathetic and he speaks directly to the audience. And you know when a character does that, just like Richard III in the sense, he, he has a direct connection. He is absolute evil incarnate. But by the end, so he starts out on the opposite scale of Titus. By the end, Aaron, who has a child, is saying, kill me and save my child. And it's an incredible thing to watch these two men's experience through, through, the, through the story. Well, I read the play and I was shocked by it. Uh, Jeffrey Horowitz said, oh, you'd be good for this because I'd done Oedipus Rex, transposed heads or heads being lopped off and changed on others, other bodies. Um, Juan Barrien, you beat the boy and blood and fire. I'd done, I'd done a lot of violence, but I'd always done very poetic violence, very artistic violence, very stylized violence. In an Asian, you know, if you, if you think of the red streamers coming out of the hands or out of the eyes, um, it, it, I had never used stage blood. And this was the most challenging thing because when you think that you're going to go through 15 acts of violence, there is no way, what, the, the point of using stylized violence is that it, it allows the audience to operate on two levels. You get it because it is happening in front of you, but it's also something that you can get in, in, in an intellectual, uh, on, a, in a, on a poetic vein. You, the, the violence becomes uh, poetic and beautiful in a way. It's not just supposed to make you go, or give you that kind of reaction. And I didn't think that was right for Titus. That's certainly not what was intended, I'm sure, at the time when they performed it. But on the other hand, if you do it all with slate of hand, cutting off stage blood, people will become numb by the third time, as they do in violent movies that we see on TV or in the movie theaters. So there was this interesting dilemma of should I, if could I combine the two styles, which is what I ended up doing. Because if you could do that, the audience would never know. And the convention would never be one kind, so they, go, they could rest easy. So when you wanted it to have, you, at one point when we cut off Titus's hand, we did it as best we could. And we had the fake hand, and we had the blood. And it was astoundingly shocking. On the other hand, when Lavinia, his daughter's hands were cut off, this came from the text again. He describes, um, oh god, I don't know if I can remember it now, but her branches, her lovely limbs lopped. That's one of the, the, the tree is a constant symbol in, in Titus. So we, we, we literally had tree branches that were wrapped in, in um, I don't even know if they were red, but were wrapped with, with pieces of fabric around there so that through the rest of the production, she had a red line down her, her white, whitish face, and she had these tree limbs that were representative of her, limb, her hands that were lopped off. And it worked for me very well to combine these two, these two styles. Um, I have a question simply as a theater goer. Uh, 
your production of, of Titus, um, there wasn't exactly one period. I don't think you could identify a period. The costumes ranged from contemporary, very various modes of costuming. And this seems to be a style these days uh, that many directors uh, adopt uh, of this incredible mixture of times and, and places. And sometimes I find it very incoherent. And I wondered, um, I, yeah, I can, I can talk. I've never ever wanted to update Shakespeare. And I found, um, I don't usually like it. I figure he picked the period. He wasn't writing in his own period. So he obviously picked the period that he felt was suitable to tell the story. If he said it in Rome, he could, you know. It, so it, I never could really say that I needed to set it in a Victorian time or at this time or that. You know, mm -hmm. you're talking about the actual eclectic mix of mm -hmm. times. What happened with Titus? I, I I agree. I think sometimes when it becomes so specific, so time specific, it gets jolting, and you're asking the audience to think about it. You know, it's you're saying. Think about it. What does this mean now? Oh, she looks like Annie Oakley. Are we supposed to think about? Uh, it's a, it, oh, it's a Western, and now oh, he's Victorian from England, and you know it, it can get distracting. What we tried to do with Titus, one of the things that I that I that I felt very strongly about was that the color palette was limited, that it was black, white, red, and blue, and what that was about was the the, the color of veins under the skin. Was you know this was the inspiration for it. If you somehow can pull these, these, in some way, pull your design together by certain restrictions, it won't feel quite like you're just grabbing eclectically this period costume from this period, mm -hmm. but that there is unity. And the way that this was conceived, we started at the beginning of Titus, not the very beginning because there's a boy, it's, it's almost from his point of view. Well, it is a boy, he's in a white t-shirt and black jeans, and he's got little goth and Roman uh, characters little what he calls toys. toys that he's playing with on a kitchen table. So you are getting that it's coming from his point of view. And when you first see the army marching in, it is pre, it is earlier than Roman. What is the period? It's um, Goth? No, no, Goth is the German. Yeah. It's, but it is really ancient Roman costumes covered with all kinds of mud. Then the principle on which the costumes were designed were really about character. They were not about periods of time, but more what, what period did that character feel like? And Tamara, who's the uh, enemy goth queen, did feel like she was out of the damned, and did feel like a very, to me, um, uh, decadent, wily, par partially masculine, feminine, um, cropped blonde hair, sexual. This is where the ideas came from. Um, and Lavinia, who is Titus's daughter, felt like Grace Kelly. She felt very proper, very pure. She came out of the 50s in the sense that she had the kind of dress. So now, I think as costumes, these costumes work together. Even though one may have felt like it was from the 30s or the 40s, and one was from the 50s, and then later we were in the 60s. It was 20th century, no doubt. But the simplicity of the, the um, sculpture, the shapes, what we work on is the shapes, and the color palette makes it unified. So you, we couldn't just take a dress with all the lace. We strip it down. So you're getting essences again of what those kinds of clothes mean to a character. Because you do feel an attitude about an age. An age has a personality. And when we think of you know, Visconti's The Damned, or, or you look at that whole pre-Hitler beginning of Nazism, mm -hmm. there's a, there is this incredible slinky, 
feel with the, with the dresses clinging to the bodies, and it gives a lot. Any woman will tell you, you know, a dress will tell you how you feel. So um, that's how we came up with this. By the time Titus, who comes from this very militaristic visual image, and when he's going mad, he's in a sloppy gray cardigan sweater. And I think that putting him to, into togas or all would do that quite the same way. So it really, this play said that to me. I'm working on it as a feature film now. And film, I'm going, I'm going to direct it next year. And it will be the same idea. And you can do this easier in theater than you can do. You know, cinema is a very literal medium. And I don't know if you all saw Romeo and Juliet. That was updated, though. I mean, that did feel like it, but it was, it was fanciful, but it was still felt of a time. It had its own coherent time, which was fairly contemporary. I'm, I'm going to try and mix the times again. And it's going to be interesting to see if that can work and not feel like you have to think about it again too much. You're a director and you're a woman. Has the fact that you're a woman figured at all in your career, do you think? I, I, you know, from my point of view, I think probably in, in certain job areas, but I've never not done what I wanted mm -hmm. to do. It's just taken a lot longer. Um, it takes being more persistent. I think that there is, I think that most women directors will talk about this enfant terrible syndrome, which is very a nauseating concept, but women cannot be it. You know, that, that powerful, nasty, 28, 25-year-old man who's got, you know, who terrifies the world. That is a male thing. And when women do it, it just is a bitch, you know? I mean, it's really, I, I, I think there is, I don't want to name names, but there are a lot of film directors and theater directors who ha have that kind and therefore get there very fast. And women have to work a lot more consistently and harder. It's rarely going to be that kind of thing. There's very, very few women. Um, I think that, that, that women and men are different, so I would say that just how you direct probably would be, but not, I don't think about it that much. I mean, I, I doesn't mean, I mean, I, I, everybody wonders, Titus is so violent, but that doesn't, that, it's how you do the play. It's not what the material is. I'm sure that there's, well, when The Lion King opens next fall on Broadway, you will be one of the few women directing a musical. Uh, That's true. On, on Broadway. And I think it is, it's a, it's a lousy situation, and I think there are plenty of women <laughs> who can do it, but it's not, it is much harder, just like women conductors or any, any, in any of those fields. It's mm -hmm. very, very hard to get those positions. Um, do you feel like I'm going to get up to questions sure. at this point? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, she's talking about a film I directed that was, it was, the film was called Fool's Fire, and it was based on Edgar Allan, show, Edgar Allan Poe's short story, Hot Frog. Uh, it was on PBS in 1991, or I think, 91, or, yeah, I, I don't remember, 91 or 90, 90. And this was my first film work. It was um, American Playhouse basically gave me an hour, and I was going to do uh, two Poe tales. I had written both scripts, The Telltale Heart and Hot Frog. And the reason I wanted to do these two was, first of all, I think it's hard to make a short story into a full length. It's, you know, quite often you ruin what was good about the short story, even though we did that with Juan Darien. It, it's, it just seemed like 
I, I didn't think I could expand Telltale Heart to a full-length piece. But I also wanted very desperately in my first film, Foray, not to be pigeonholed with puppets. So Telltale Heart was supposed to be a black and white film with actors and very psychological, a dark psychological film. And Hot Frog was, as inspired by the story, court jesters and these grotesque fat ministers and king. And I thought, well, there I'll do the more Fellini-esque kind of work with, that, that I love with high color and use, um, I use the Italian uh, um, Sienese-style painters as inspiration. And there, in one hour, I could say, I can do this and I can do that. And I like this and I like that. Well, doing this and that is twice as expensive as doing that. So one of them had to go. And the one that had to go was the one that could not be really made into an hour. And that was Telltale Heart. So I concentrated on Fool's Fire. And I added a lot to Edgar Allan Poe's short story to make it have reason to be an hour. Um, it's a really nasty tale of vengeance of this, of this uh, dwarf court jester who is abused and manipulated like a toy in the court by these really repugnant, huge, corpulent ministers and king. And then um, at the end of the story, he burns them alive. That's making it very short. Uh, there's another character who comes in, which is a, a, a midget, a beautiful, not young, just a beautiful woman who's brought to the court. Hot Frog falls in love with her. And when he sees that she's being treated this way, misused, that's when he, he can't take it anymore. And so he really he, he gets inspired to commit this act. And when I started to work on the story, I wasn't sure I was going to use puppetry in the film. I was really loath to do this, actually, to use puppetry, even though I do love it and I can do it. I just wasn't sure I wanted to do that in a film world. But when I started to think about hiring eight fat, hugely fat actors, <laughs> I thought, I'm doing to these actors what the story does to Hot Frog. And it's OK in literature. But if I'm going to start making fun of people who are obese, and it's about making fun of someone who's little, I couldn't do that. You know, as much as I love Fellini and Rita Bertmuller, it bugs me every time you know, when you're laughing at these incredible, I, it's, it's not that I wouldn't put a person like that into a film, but to, when the film is about that, it seemed a little strange. So I knew that if I made the, the ministers and the king puppets larger than life, they're humongous, the, and isolated Hot Frog and Trapetta as the, as the human beings, as the only human beings, two things would happen. One is there would be enough distance so that you're OK to laugh at those fat and their roles and their, their, their grotesque talk. It, it, it gives you, um, like all puppetry does, it, gives, it sanctions violence, actually. I mean, it allows, Punch and Judy allows you, children, to enjoy that kind of domestic <coughs> violence. And on the other hand, and the other good thing that would come out of it was midgets and dwarfs and little people are really seen as some kind of foreign object by all of us. Therefore, if they're the only human beings, we're forced to identify with them because they're the only human beings. They're the only ones who had real tears, real sweat, had blinking eyes, that, that had passion for each other. They were us. So it, it became much more powerful because I kept them as real beings. And what was fantastic in shooting this, Michael Anderson, who had been in Twin Peaks, he was the, um, the dwarf in Twin Peaks who moves backwards and does all kinds of stuff. He said, we, we did a documentary of the making of Fool's Fire, and 
it was, I wasn't there when he and, and Mireille, the other uh, little person, were interviewed, but he said this is the first time that he was the real thing in, in the midst of special effects. It was the first time he wasn't a special effect. And when I said, are you going to show the film to David Lynch? He said, no. If I show this to David Lynch, I'll never get cast again because David will see me as a human being. And that's not what he uses me for. <laughs> you know, and he knew exactly what, how people responded to, to him. And Mireille, who was 35 years old, when she was interviewed, she said she loved playing Trippetta because it was the first time she'd been allowed to play a woman. All her life, she'd played little boys or spirits or freaks. And this time, she could play a woman. So it was, a, it was a tremendous experience. Is there any other specific question about Fool's Fire? We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. The, the, Tom Schumacher, who is the uh, vice president of um, Disney Feature Animation, called me up a year and a half ago, or I don't know, it's getting endless now, but a long time ago. And I remembered his name because he, 10 years ago, he was the head of the Los Angeles Olympic Arts Festival. And that's when I had done Liberty's Taken. And I had a, a videotape of Liberty's Taken. I had sent a videotape to Tom to see if they would be interested in producing it. Um, his story is that they, they couldn't or they wanted to, but he just didn't, I think. <laughs> I don't know what it was. <laughs> I love his story, but I'm going, I don't remember that. But anyway, he remembered the videotape. And in that videotape, as I told you, there were all kinds of different techniques to create this landscape and all of these characters. So he called me and said, would you like to talk about The Lion King? And I had never seen the movie. It's not something that I would naturally go to, even though I do like, I like early animation a lot. I love the Betty Boops and a lot of the, the uh, I love that kind of animation. Um, I didn't really know this animation. And when I went in to meet, I had looked at the film and I was very impressed with um, not necessarily the look of the film, but the actual uh, power of the animation, the scope of it and the challenge of trying to do those landscapes and all those herds and all those animals and characters and stampedes and waterfalls and all of that on the stage. That's the kind of challenge I like as a director for the stage, because that's when you really have to find out what, how do you reduce this all? How do we say it very simply and get to the essence of it? So I, I was interested in the challenge, especially because they said you've got freedom. And the freedom is that the characters don't have to look like the Disney characters unless you want them to. And in some cases, it's been my own choice to be closer to the, to the actual animated character, especially with the comic characters. Because there's the audiences that know this movie, and there's such a huge audience, are going to know those characters. And it'd be like making Santa Claus skinny. You know, it, it, it's, it's what did they just do to Superman I saw on TV? They took his red panties off or something. It's a big problem. <laughs> So um, I was very happy that I was given not only freedom to think about it visually, but they also, in the beginning, said, we don't know if this is a, this is a um, arena show, whether it's a Radio City Music Hall, whether it's this, whether, but we would like it to be a legitimate Broadway musical. Therefore, we know the book needs work. So I worked with the original writers um, and one of the original film directors on rewrites, especially of the second half. And then I was the one, there were only five songs in the movie. So I also, there was a, an album that came out called Rhythm of the Pride Lands, which takes the score music. Hans Zimmer, Hans Zimmer wrote the score. And Lebo M, who's a South African, who put in a lot of the choral vocals into that, um, 
they had put out an al album that was inspired by the score where the chorus was really in the foreground. And I seized upon that because I've directed, I've directed, which I haven't talked about at all, uh, opera, quite four operas. Um, and I work with large choruses, and I love that. I love the presence of chorus on stage. And I thought, if anything is going to make this work, the more human it is, the more visceral, tactile, and the less cinematic, and I don't mean cinematic in my style of theatrical cin cinematics, but I mean in projections or you know, in covering up the individuals totally, then I would have a hard time competing with the film. So we took these songs, and I found five more songs from that album, and gave, they were in Zulu, and some of them remain in Zulu, and some of them we put new lyrics to and fit them to the, I said, this sounds like this character, that sounds like this is that scene. And then Tim, uh, Tim Rice and Elton John have written three new songs per what I've asked, you know, where I, I said the hyenas could sing and the Zazu could sing and the, you know, and this could be that. So we've got, we now have about 15, and then some of the music will be created in rehearsal by Lebo, who will be creating with the, with the chorus um, and the dancers uh, chants. You know, really, uh, Zulu and other other languages, African languages, that everybody's fine with, because again, they, we all understand that you don't need to understand every single word. Um, Garth Fagan is the choreographer, and um, Richard Hudson, who's an, a British set designer, did La Bette here a number of years ago. He's doing the sets, and it's been it's been a long. I mean, it's very long. That's the thing that makes it unusual. It's just a, two years of working. That's why I did Juan Darien and the Green Bird in between. Otherwise, I'd go crazy you know, if I didn't keep actually having things happen and not waiting for them to happen. But the this is the first commercial production I've ever done. Because the operas, Oedipus Rex, had two performances. You know, I worked on it a year. It was a million dollar budget. You know, it was a big budget. We had a film, so that exists. And I'm that's out on Laserdisc and videotape, the Oedipus Rex, which you should see because if you didn't see it on PBS, it's a, it's a really, uh, Jesse Norman is in it, and Grin Terrible, and Min Tanaka, it was in Japan, and we had 80 men in the chorus. Um, Suzushi Hanayagi, who is Robert Wilson, known as Robert Wilson, often frequent collaborator, choreographer, did the choreography. But I've done productions that, uh, Green Bird, two and a half weeks, you know, Juan Darien, limited run, this was longer, you know, but not open run. And it's very attractive to work with a company that does not want it to close after three weeks. So <laughs> that, therefore, they will give you time to develop. And we have had workshops, development time. And, and I am working with Michael Curry, who's creating the puppets with me. And we're inventing things I've never done before. So there is more experimentation on The Lion King than I've quite a lot more than I've ever really had the opportunity to do, um, because you just don't have the luxury. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. I love the cast of The Green Bird. It was really, that was one of the most fun, fun times I've ever had. I didn't even audition Derek Smith for it, which was the sort of surprise joy of it because he was so brilliant as the king. But I had auditioned him for Titus, and I knew what he, and, I, and I'd seen him before. The first thing you ha I had to do was the auditions. And the way you audition for a piece, the Green Bird, for those of you, I, just for those of you who don't know, is a Commedia dell'arte piece by Carlo Gazzi. And it's usually in the Commedia style performed with half masks. Um, you don't have to, and I'm sure a lot of other people just use makeup or, or stylized makeup. 
but they are these larger-than-life characters. And so I wanted to do the full half mask with the makeup matching on the bottom style. And when you audition an actor, how do you know they can do that? And I also um, didn't make the masks before I cast the show. I might draw pictures and sketch out what I think the characters were, were going to be like, but the auditions helped to inform me a lot. I mean, that's the sneaky director time. You learn a lot about, that's why I don't like to do, I like, I like auditions, because you hear so many different ways. So it, it, it gives you a lot of ideas. Um, I had about 15 masks from various other shows that I brought to the auditions. And what I did, this was, they, audi they read the text like a normal audition, and that's pretty regular. And then what, what each actor had to do was they, they were allowed to pick three masks from the group of 15. They were on their own. They had a mirror to work with. Then they would come into the audition and improvise. And it was thrilling. And if that could have been videotaped, it was better than most Saturday Night Live sketches. Because <laughs> no, nothing coming from me. It was pure because they were put on the spot. There was a certain amount of freedom. No text. Because you can't tell if a person can work with a mask. If I couldn't put a mask on and have them read. So they'd look at the, their face. They would, you know, we would talk about just, you know, how, how to find. Um, some of them worked with, came up with great lines, and some of them weren't as good verbally. But it was as much to see how they would find the body sculpture that matches the mask, to find the walk, the character. And that's how I cast it. Um, then what I do is I make life casts after, uh, off the actor's face so that I can actually fit the masks perfectly because they cover the top lip and if you're going to sing or do something verbal you've got to be very careful you can't push it down too far but it, it really helps set the expression so each actor had a very personalized mask I mean they, they really fit them they could sometimes the eyes are up here as in the king and if you have the eyes up here I have to work out where the actor is actually seeing and you try and do it in the uh, in the um, shadows underneath the puffs, <laughs> whatever. You look for a place in the face where you can put buckram so the actor is seeing out of the mask. And then what we did for the first, and I don't do this just with the green bird, but working in this ideographic manner to find um, the themes of the play. In, in Titus, it was, it was really opening up all the themes of the play and releasing the actors from playing the characters in the beginning. We read, this, we read the text like any other play. You might do that. But then just working on aspects of the play. In The Green Bird, we got more specific to working on how do you do isolation movement. Because a mask is all about isolation. You know, the eyes don't move. So when you move your head like this, that's making the eyes move. Uh, so we, do, we would do full hour, two, three hours of physical body work that I would lead. I, I studied um, at Lecoq's in Paris, which is where I got a lot of that information from. And then working with Balinese mask and Javanese mask dancers, I picked up a lot of those techniques. And we use videotape. Now, this is really tricky because you've got to get this by equity. But it's, a, it's something that is absolutely necessary for puppet and mask work because an actor doesn't know what they look like. You can look in the mirror. You can get an idea. But you can't act in the mirror because your head's going to stay in one direction. So we would use, only in the very early stages, we would use videotape. And even having two actors just say their lines and sit in the chair forward and just, they're not playing to the video, they're playing to each other, but being limited to use their head to just be able to find what is, how the gesture 
emphasizes something just by isolating the head because sometimes when you've got your whole body there's not enough restrictions and it's very hard to find what the vocabulary is. We also did enormous amounts of improvisation because it's comedia. I would have done that with or without the mask. If, if you've seen The Green Bird, the very first scene between Pantalone and the King where they're doing tissues and issues, I don't know if you remember this, and, um, all of that was from the actors, improvisation. There was about five or six lines from Bur Albert Burmell's script. Then because I felt that those, the, in his script and in the original Commedia, you know, the Commedia originally was all improvised. So somebody took it down, Gotzi somehow took it, and he formed it. But it's the freedom, it is about the freedom of the actors to be able to make up the text. A lot of actors can't do that. I mean, we're not trained to do that. I happen to have two who were brilliant at it. I let all of them improvise. Some of the actors didn't, couldn't come up with, they could improvise to a degree, but they weren't really playwrights. I mean, they weren't coming out with language. These two guys, maybe it was the second rehearsal or third rehearsal, went on for two hours, and we scribbled down every single thing they said. <laughs> and they just found this incredible rapport, like, you know, I'm sure the, the Chicago city limits or whatever, you know, all these, these improv groups, they get going, and they, and they came up with brilliant events. You know, it wasn't just about, it was that all of a sudden the tissue became um, her, the, the, the dove that went. No one really, would really think up something like that. That is an actor's inspiration. And so we kept it, and we edited it down and, and tried to piece it together. And God bless Albert Brumell, he wasn't precious about it. Well, now he's getting credit for it because it's in the script. <laughs> but, you know, he, he really loved what they came up with. And it, it was interesting how that got much more direct comic rea I mean, uh, audience response than anything else in the piece because I think it was so connected to the actors and it had been their property. Um, Oh God, I can't remember. You know, I have to think about this now on The Green Bird because it was um, last year. Um, you may not want me to think about this too long right now. I'll, you know, if we're afterwards or something, because I'm not, I'm, it's not going to come to me right away. I've got to pick who, if we take Derek and, and Pantalone, I'm not even sure it was very structured. You know, because the mask gives you a lot of structure. So even if you're starting with the scene that exists, which is, I'm coming home from war and I'm seeing my butler or my minister, prime minister for the first time. Um, it didn't need a lot. With we did a lot of working on the walk and the movement beforehand, you know, and, and simultaneously with working on text, we're just working. We did about a week of working on ideographs that had nothing to do with the play, of just using it as a, as a way of working, of how to create, how to use your body and how to think with your body. Yeah. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. The masks were carved, it's a plaster mold of the face, then sculpted with clay over that, and then uh, celastic, which is not that easy to find anymore. It's like, um, it's like a plastic paper mache. Lighter than, than paper. No, paper mache is lighter, it's just, it just takes longer to do and you need six layers of it, and it's not as durable. But, but paper mache is very, very light. You can do it, it's just, you don't get as much control and you get a lot of little wrinkles and then you got to do a lot of finishing and so I haven't worked in paper mache in a long time. The big huge serpentina, that giant puppet was paper mache because we didn't have, we couldn't find enough. Isn't the celastic sort of plastic? 
Acetone is toxic, yeah. I don't do the celastic. Somebody else does the celastic <laughs> with a mask. No, no, no. And it's not that toxic. I mean, it, it is, but you don't, you're not putting your hands directly in it. And people do use, they use masks to um, protect them from breathing. But I don't like to work in it. I do the sculpture. Um, even on The Lion King, I'm, I'm, I'm directing, I'm designing the costumes, and I'm co-designing the puppetry and masks. But my part of the co-design is really the aesthetic look, the design of it. And my partner, Michael Curry, is more responsible for the mechanics. He's a genius at a whiz at the mechanics. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, it, again, in The Green Bird, there was an actor, and Andy Weems, who played Pantalone. But when he had auditioned, he was the one actor who I didn't know how he would play Pantalone. I didn't really like any of his auditions, but I thought he was so talented. He could do a million characters, so he would do it as a Russian, as a Italian, blah, blah, blah. and he kept changing, but none of them were exactly right. And so when he first came into rehearsal, I had, um, there's another form of half mask called a peace mask, which means it might just be a nose and a forehead, and it gives a lot more expression to, to you've got your cheeks to work with. Uh, it's, it, it, it works for the lower comic characters, if you understand. It's not, it wouldn't work for the king and the queen or Titania and Oberon. It, it would work for the mechanicals, you know, like a Johnny Chin or a... So I had about five of these masks, and I just watched Andy play. And he picked up one, and that's the one he got. And I didn't make a new mask for him. He actually picked one up, and he found the voice. And he couldn't do it without the mask. It was the mask that inspired him to find that old Italian, oh, boys, talk like this. And it was so perfect. And there we said, oh, and then he's got the little bow tie. And you know, we started to be inspired. It wasn't designed before Andy got there. Um, quite often, I do all the design ahead of time. Mine's been completely designed ahead of time. Can't afford to wait. But in this case, I knew that the actors were going to give a lot to this uh, production. Not everyone. I mean, we did a lot of Constance Hoffman who designed the costumes. We did a lot of pre-design, but this was one we just didn't have until he came. But because I loved him so much in all the other masks, I made up another character. So he played the hairdresser. He played the Italian, you know, the French hairdresser, the Italian, um, or, or was it French uh, tailor, the Italian hairdresser, and the uh, Bronx um, manicurist, because he was so good. So I said, okay, you play all of those masks. So there's a, you know, it's, and then Andy also could sing. Oh, oh, good. Oh, Elliot, write a song for Andy. He can sing. So he played, um, <laughs> he did this beautiful thing in the beginning of Act Two with, as the Harlequino, um, singing to the moon uh, in Italian. As it came. So, and then he did the voice of Calman too, because he could do that. So, it, you know, it was, it was just one of those, I didn't know if he would even fit in when we cast him. And I thought, oh, we'll figure it out. It'll, it'll happen. I think, you know, this was an amazing thing for Derek. No one knew, and I don't even think Derek knew how great Derek. Derek, who played the king, won an Obie Award. And I was told by one of the judges that they fought a lot about giving him an Obie because he was wearing a mask. And the, the woman who told me the story, who was one of the judges, said that's precisely why he deserves an Obie Award, because look at the performance he gave. You know, the, and no doubt the actors have an ego problem with losing their faces. Not, I mean, we would talk about this. It is very hard. 
not as hard in something like the green bird, where it's not an oversized head, like the Toledo and Juan Darien, where you really are, you don't have dialogue. You know, the Toledo was the jaguar tamer, the flamenco dancer. Or in Juan, where you're an ensemble player, and you're never given credit for anything, except for maybe the boy and the mother. That's, that's the killer. And when I was saying that earlier, that's the hardest thing to do, is to ask people, ask actors who are used to being individualists to be part of an ensemble. It's not hard in Asia. It's hard here. Um, but in something like The Green Bird, everybody had a featured role. So it's not, it's not dissimilar to acting in a normal play. But when I asked them all to do the apples, that was a problem. <laughs> when everybody had to do all the other puppetry and the shadow puppets, you know, I mean, how are you going to do this? You have 12 people. You're not going to hire a huge amount of extras. So, you know, there was, or they all had to get, I remember Derek was the tail. Derek was the tail on the big Serpentina. And that everybody, the stories that go on about Derek's tail, and he, I'm sure he hated it, but that was part of the job, you know. Um, I don't know if I answered your question, but. Yes. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. I haven't had any yet. <laughs> I mean, commercial, I, the first time I've gotten a royalty check was on Juan.en, and it ended pretty quickly because it was a limited run. Um, I don't know. You have to ask me that after The Lion King, because, and hopefully <laughs> it'll be successful. But it's the only, it's the only project that, that really is commercial that I've worked on. It doesn't mean I'm very proud of the pieces. They're, and that doesn't mean they didn't make the money they were supposed to in the time. They just weren't put out for an open-ended run. I did The Magic Flute in Florence, um, which was about six performances. And then it went to Turin without me. God knows what they did with it you know, a year later, because you, you don't get phone calls. And then you hear your productions being remounted, which is really the disheartening thing about opera direction. And that's another story, if any of you are interested. But Oedipus Rex, two performances live. And I love the film, but it isn't the same as, you know, when you're going to look at it on this screen, it's not like seeing it live. Um, the Wagner I did, Flying Dutchman, six performances. So, you know, it's, it, it's uh, something I've been used to is the limited run, and I'm really excited about not having one. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Yeah, but what I mean is that's like a normal director. I, I just mean that you design the sets and costumes before the first day of rehearsal. And at the first day of rehearsal, you see all of the costume designs and the, and the model. That was the same with Green Bird, except for that character. You know? We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Um, I think on, on the Green Bird, we started in about September, oct oh, no, even later, October, November. And we were in rehearsal by February. That's fast. You know, two or three, three months would be the minimum amount of time I would want to spend on, on designing. Juan Darien was a year. We, well, a year because I was designing it as well. But we, we actually, not a year working on the design, a year from where we said we were going to do the project to when we were in rehearsal. Uh, I would say the normal Shakespeare, Titus, and all, they'd be about four or five months would be the amount of time. Lion King is a year, probably. We, we will be. Well, the Lion King is, I'm the designer, so I meet with me every day. <laughs> the costume designer and the puppet 
puppets also. I, you know, because I broke it up with Juan Darien, there were times when I actually stopped working on The Lion King. But Richard Hudson, because he's from England, we have to do it in spurts. He came over the first time, was it June? June, May, June? Dan's the assistant director sitting over there, so he can. Um, and he worked through the summer with me until I went away to do The Green Bird of La Jolla, and he kept working. And uh, then we did a workshop in August, and all of his designs were there in the workshop. So this was very fast. And a lot of the costume designs were done in about the major principal costume designs were done in two or three months, really fast. But then they weren't all of them. And, and from September until November, September, October, November, we did a lot of change, you know, we did some changes. And then budget, 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 you know, just budget. And it was trying to keep what you want. doesn't matter what scale production you do it on. It always ends up being the same thing, where you want to keep what you like, but you have to do it cheaper. So trying to, making cuts. Um, and then I went through another burst of, of I, you know, I designed a certain amount and then got stuck. And then in December, I did a whole nother, uh, I did a slew of costume designs in about two weeks in December for a whole other section in the piece. Um, so it has, I, it's been kind of good because I think if I had had to design all of that in one time, I wouldn't have come up with the second group. It just, it ne I needed the break. There's, I don't know how many, Alex, how many characters are there? There's 250 costumes and I don't know. Multitudinous characters. You can't say because there's yeah. 400 wildebeest. You know, it's just there's so much in it that it became, oh. I mean, every day we go through, all right, who's changing from what to what. The people will change 10 times or more during the show. Not the principals, but the, but the chorus and the dancers will keep changing. Yeah. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Yeah, well, I have an associate costume designer who's helped. As a costume designer, what I really, I, I'm going, it's going to be a pain. I mean, there is, a, there is the downside of directing and designing, and that is, it's just too exhausting, and it's too much detail, especially what's going to happen where I have to go into the shops. So I have a good team. It doesn't matter. If you're the designer, at some point you're going to say, you have to answer, and you have to say this or that. So um, they're going to help take care of a lot of getting it started. But we did a workshop uh, two or three weeks ago where we did four characters to see what they would look like on stage in full costume with the full apparatus. And that was a lot, going into three-hour costume fittings. and. A lot for the actor, too. You know, it was a lot of work. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. We have a wardrobe supervisor who's definitely involved now because it is a complicated show with not a lot of wing space. And where everybody's going to put everything and changes the logistics is, is hugely complicated. Yes. You have a question over there. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, they don't hang around every moment, but we have um, we have conference calls about once a week or once every two weeks, and uh, and then we have the producers are in California, so they fly in for these workshops, and that's when the discussion goes on. We did a workshop in August where we did a reading of the new script with the music and the cast. Then we did some demonstration of some of the ideas for the physical, what the masks and the costumes would look like. And two of those things worked, and the rest weren't finished and didn't work, so there was doubt. And after that doubt, we went back to the drawing board 
and we worked on some ideas, and then we gave more possibilities. And we did this workshop two weeks ago, and that doubt was dispelled. And so we got, we had already had a go-ahead, but there was a feeling of confidence. And this was really an issue of, in the rehearsal hall, when people saw it in August, they were in white model, non-painted, non-fully costumed, no makeup, no lighting, and 10 or 20 feet away. And so there wasn't really, it wasn't really, you couldn't judge, and what we were talking about was focus, just quite frankly. It was, can you look at a mask on the head and look at a human being simultaneously, or where do you look? And that is a good question, and it's my question too. It's not a question that they have because they're Disney whatever. It is, I've never seen it. I did it in Oedipus Rex, but it was very different having the mask on the head because I used cycladic art, which is no facial expression. So all the facial expression came from the singer. This was emblematic of a human being, but it, if you've seen cycladic stone sculptures, they're really, that is an ideograph par excellence because it's just the shape of the head and slight feature of the nose. But it doesn't say this kind of character or that. I'm trying to do in The Lion King this double event where you're getting a character of Scar and the human equivalent simultaneously. So until we put it fully dressed, costume, makeup, on stage, in lights, we couldn't really see that an audience member, because you are a certain distance away, is able to take it in simultaneously. It's very interesting. And it's up to the actor and the lighting to tell you where to focus from moment to moment. Still going to be a challenge. But, but everybody who saw it, and there are a lot of producers involved, you know, there's a hierarchy, they were game to try it out instead of going for just the simplicity of an actor in makeup with a wig. They want, we want to go the whole hog on this concept. <laughs> the whole warthog. The whole, the whole warthog, right? <laughs> uh, you have a question over there then. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Well, I think that the festival, you know, we say in this country, and it's a very local thing, but I think the puppet festival that, that um, Lisa, not Lisa Hunt, um, Cheryl. Cheryl Henson has sponsored down at the public, has done a lot because there are some terrific puppet companies from all over the world. The problem is that you can almost never get such a full scale big, like they could never do Juan Darien. It's just too expensive. So in a festival situation where you're in and out in three days, mm -hmm. I think they did do the, um, I didn't see it, but the Mabu Mines piece yeah. that was just done was done there. Um, and they do have some larger pieces and some are good and some aren't good. But there has been already a growth in perception about puppetry. I, I'm excited about Lion King because it, it probably, on that mass scale, will be the largest piece that uses that mixture. And it's not a puppet play, and I don't want it to be perceived that way, and we, we're very worried about that. I mean, we don't want people to think, oh, it's just a puppet. It isn't. It's very human. Um, it's very, very human, and the acting will be more crucial than ever as a result because you don't, you, you know, we don't want it to just look like we've taken the animated film and put it on stage. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. It's true, and I don't know, you know, it, it won't really change until someone sees a good piece. You know, it's not just talking about it. They have to believe it. And even Disney people, you know, the various ones who were skeptical about if a puppet could carry an emotion, emotion. Now, anybody who's seen Juan or has seen Bunraku Theater will know that that is definitely possible. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. No, but the paints on cellulite have a lot of facial expression. And that is one of the things that's, you know, when I look at the animated film, I go, oh my God. You know, I appreciate it more and more <laughs> as I work yeah. on it. Because you look at Scar, the, whoever animated Scar is a genius actor. 
genius actor. It's, it's better than a human. You've got every single, we don't do that. Puppet, puppets are, you don't want to do that on the stage. First of all, who would want to sit there with all those mechanical things and do that? But you know, it's impossible. Therefore, you've got that, that puppet of Juan didn't have facial expression. But when he went like this to the mother or grabbed her, it's all in the gesture. Everybody went, oh, even more than if he was a human boy. It'd be sentimental, practically, if it was human. Be coy or cuter. You, you know, you've got a whole other danger. But when you see three people manipulating a doll, what is a three-foot doll that can only, you know, has these arms like this and creates a, a genuine human expression that we recognize, that's high art. That is exactly what theater should be. And, you know, I'm not saying theater should be puppetry, but when it's done well and you say, I know I'm in a room here, but you've got me, I'm, I believe we're in hell or I believe we're, you know, on a sand dune or something. That's, that, that consciousness is what makes it art, you know, and poetry, is, is understanding that the form is as beautiful as the content. And this is a big thing that we, we've gotten by with, with Lion King is that we want it to be elegant which is an odd word to think of with, a, with, a, with an animation or Disney, you know, but we're really working. They should enjoy the form and we, you know, it's my task to make sure the story works and that you get lost in the story, but there is a certain amount where the form, and musicals are like that. Otherwise, you know, you just tell the story, why do they sing and dance, that the form. If you all saw Evita, did you see Evita the movie? I thought it was weird because the dancing wasn't the same kind of dancing. It was literal. It was people dancing. They could dance because they were in a dance hall, you know, and therefore it lacked something. You know, the dance wasn't expressing the story at all. It was just a scene, which was very, very, very hard to do. The movie part is hard to, to do. Musicals as movies are tricky. Probably animation could do it because it's already one step away from realism. Okay. Well, I'll look forward to seeing Lion King when that comes out. And I want to thank you all for joining us this afternoon. Thanks very much. Again, this is Hal Prince, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members online at ssdc.org. The online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theatre is made through the words of the people who make theatre. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.